0: Most people like themselves and want to be noticed. Even more than that, they want to be remembered. In 1656, Spanish artist Diego Velazquez was commissioned by the king for a painting. That painting, uh, later to be named Las Meninas, depicted the young Princess Margarita surrounded by two of the queen's maids of honor and a couple of dwarfs and servants. Perhaps most curiously, the king and queen can be seen painted dimly in a mirror, in the background, while artist Velazquez painted himself prominently in the portrait, paintbrush and palette in hand. No doubt many art history classes have debated Velazquez's motives for including himself prominently in the painting, I'm not going to get involved in that discussion, but I I do think that we have something of a Velasquez in our text this morning. Jehu, the new king of the northern kingdom of Israel, he, he kind of paints the true king dimly in the background of his actions. But it's clear in the end that he is more focused on himself than on God. As we look at this text, we ought to ask ourselves, who are we painting prominently in the portrait of our lives? Is Jesus the center of attention? Or are we? Well, if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 10. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 316. First and Second Kings, they were originally one book, and together their message is that despite Israel's sin and the sins of her kings, God's true king will come. Though the book describes a, a descent, a decline, from the golden era of Solomon's reign into the grueling era of the exile, and though the prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha, expose Israel's disobedience to the law of God, the book still concludes with a king with a son of David being released from prison and this gives us hope that God will yet fulfill his promises to send a son to send a son of David to sit on the throne and reign forever in our last several studies in Kings our attention has been aimed at the northern kingdom the focus of 2nd Kings chapter 10 remains on the northern kingdom Jehu in fulfillment of the word of the prophet Elijah in first Kings 19 and first Kings 21 has just put to death the son of Ahab and Jezebel Ahab and Jezebel were the, the horrible royal power couple who introduced Baal worship into the northern kingdom of Israel and because of this and because of of Ahab's murder of God's prophets Ahab he came under Yahweh under God's Judgment. So in 2nd Kings chapter 9, Jehu has begun to carry out Yahweh's judgment on the house of Ahab. And in 2nd Kings chapter 10, the chapter we're looking at together this morning, Jehu continues to carry out the word of the Lord promised by the prophet Elijah. Jehu puts to death more of Ahab's sons, and he puts to death the remaining worshippers of Baal. And there's a reason that the sermon is titled, He Wiped Them Out. He wipes out a lot of people in this chapter. This is a a bloody chapter of judgment, but a bit like Jesus' parables, it comes with a twist in the end. While Jehu is an instrument of the Lord's judgment throughout most of the chapter, he actually receives his own judgment in the end. He receives his own divine evaluation. And spoiler alert, it's not good. There are lessons to learn, not only from Jehu's bloodshed, but also from Jehu's own moral bankruptcy. God used Jehu to prosecute his righteous judgment. And though he was to be commended for some of his deeds, his heart was not right. And when your heart is not right, all is wrong. From 2 Kings chapter 10, we learn that while we must put sin itself to death, Sin's true defeat comes from true devotion to God, which Jehu lacked. We're going to study 2 Kings chapter 10 in three sections under three headings. The end of Ahab's house, the end of Baal's house, and the end of Jehu's reign. Let's begin with our first point, the end of Ahab's house. And here we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 17. But for now... Let's just begin simply by reading the first 11 verses, 2 Kings chapter 10, beginning there in verse 1, reading to verse 11. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, so Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and... There are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons. Select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all, all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your masters, sons, sons, And come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them. Seventy persons. And put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, They have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said... Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. We kind of need to begin where these verses end. In verse 10, as part of his inauguration speech, with 70 heads piled up on his left and his right, Jehu reminds us that he is bringing about the fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Elijah. Specifically, Jehu is fulfilling 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 21, which says, and this is is Elijah's pronouncement from Yahweh to Ahab. Elijah said, Behold, I will bring, this is for the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. What we're seeing, and what we're about to see, is that when Yahweh said He would cut off from Ahab every male, He meant it. He gives His word, and He keeps His word. Verse 10, right? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord. Judgment started... With the house of Ahab back in 1 Kings, chapter 21 and 22. And Jehu, he reignited the judgment here in 2 Kings, chapter 9. And here in chapter 10, we see that God's judgment continues to fall upon the house of Ahab through the death of his 70 sons who lived in Samaria and more who were there in Jezreel. The author really doesn't want us to miss the fact that Ahab had 70 sons. He mentions it no less than three times. He's not interested in informing us that Ahab had multiple wives and that's how he came to have so many sons. No, he is most interested in searing into our minds that the Lord is true to his word and that just as he promised, he did indeed cut off every male from the house of Ahab. And notice how Jehu goes about ending Ahab's house. He writes letters to the rulers of the city. Do you remember how The episode began with Naboth and Jezebel. She wrote letters. Here we are, back to writing letters to the rulers of the city. And he writes to these rulers of the city. He says, "Okay, guys, it's time for a fight. Okay, you pick the best of your master's sons. You sit them on your father's throne, and we're going to have at it. And they decide, we can't do that. He just put two kings to death. We can't take this guy on. So they write him back and they say, look, look, we're yours. We're going to serve you. You tell us what you want us to do. And what does he do? He asks for the heads of Ahab's sons. And you know, because he is a prime customer, they agree, they decapitate Ahab's 70 sons and they rush the delivery. It's at this point that Jehu delivers his inauguration speech. In his speech, Jehu not only appeals to Elijah's prophetic word in 1 Kings 21 as the warrant for his actions, but he also points out that those in power are coalescing to him. Uh, The purpose of this is to make plain that he is in fact, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he is the new king in Israel, in the northern kingdom. No one should challenge his rule, for those in power will act on his behalf. Just think of the effect of delivering this speech with these piles of heads on the ground to the left and right. Jehu's assertion of total domination does not end there. For in verses 12 to 14 of this chapter, Jehu, he meets men from the southern kingdom. And as it turns out, they're on their way to visit Ahab's sons and Jezebel. Now, word must not have reached them about the fate of Jezebel and Ahab's 70 sons. They confess that their relatives of Ahaziah, he's actually now dead, he's the now dead king of the southern kingdom. Because intermarrying took place between Ahab's house and Ahaziah's house, these 42 men are now considered not merely sympathizers, but sons of Ahab. And they're on their way to this family reunion but they clearly failed to call ahead. Jehu does not leave anything to chance. He will not have anyone threaten his throne. So he puts these distant relatives of Ahab to death. What takes place in verses 15 and 16 brings out a demand that Jehu has been making. It brings out a demand for loyalty to Jehu. Jehu asks this guy, Jehonadab, to join him in his zeal for the Lord. Just look at the question that Jehu asks there in verse 15. You see verse 15 the question he asks, "Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours?" Now, on the battlefield, you've got to know that the man next to you is committed. Jehu wants to know if Jehonadab was loyal, just as he wanted to know if the the rulers in Samaria are loyal. And here we're already beginning to gain a sense that Jehu's motives they may not be entirely pure. At best, they're mixed. There may be some zeal for the Lord, but it is mixed with some zeal for Jehu. Are you loyal to me? Now, this is going to bubble up and boil over later in the chapter, but for now, don't miss the author's main point in these verses. It's there in verse 17. And we see that Jehu is fully authorized to do what he's done. Look at verse 17. And when he, that's Jehu, when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah all of this was according to the word that's the point it's been said twice once in verse 10 and now here in verse 17 as a kind of summary of the whole Jehu was Yahweh's instrument of judgment on the house of Ahab just as Yahweh promised Yahweh would not let Ahab and his sins go unpunished. Ahab's bloody slaughter of God's prophets through the bloody slaughter of Ahab's brought the bloody slaughter of Ahab's sons. Now we are deeply concerned with injustice in our society. And rightly so. And the Christian's hope and peace and assurance is that God will right all wrongs. Here he writes the wrongs of Ahab and Jezebel And he keeps his word we must come to terms with this truth that God will do what he says he will do those first reading the book of Kings in exile needed to be reminded of this they were in exile because God promised to punish idolatry wickedness and sin those in exile needed to cling to the truth that God would do what he said he would do because it was not not only the reason for their discipline the reason for being in exile, but it was also their only hope in exile. God said that he would bring them out of exile, and they had to cling to that word of promise too. What can we learn from the certainty of God's word and the end of Ahab's house? We can certainly learn that God will judge all sin, and so we should fear to sin. God will judge all sin, and we should fear to sin. We should also rejoice, because if there is no judgment, then nothing matters. Injustice perpetrated does not matter if there is no judgment. But each one of us knows deep in our hearts that injustice and sin must be punished. And we know that because there is a God in heaven who has made us in His image and has planted eternity in our hearts. He has told us that His Son will come to judge the living and the dead. And we can trust His Word. We can also have hope that the Lord Jesus will come again, because He who promised is faithful. Christians can live joyfully and freely, because we know that when Jesus returns, we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, because of the work of Jesus. Jesus. We know that we will be made perfectly blessed, both in soul and in body, in the full enjoyment of God, to all eternity. And there's another more mundane lesson in this text, too, that helps us to understand something of God's mysterious working in this world. God uses fallen and flawed men and women to accomplish His purposes, His sovereign purposes, In this world, as the Puritan minister Thomas Watson once said, "God can make a straight stroke with a crooked stick." Yahweh can use flawed men to fulfill His purposes. The reality is, is that we're all crooked sticks. Uh, We often forget this about ourselves. We remember it about others, but we forget this about ourselves. Give others the same kind of generosity and grace that you want to be given. We're all flawed, fallible, and fallen. And that does not mean that we can overlook evil, wickedness, and sin. No. It simply means that we lovingly and generously call others to repentance through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as we would want others to do with us when we are confronted with our errors and sins. Perhaps one of the amazing truths of this chapter is is that God can use an unrighteous man and even His unrighteous deeds to fulfill His righteous purposes. We see that in Jesus, don't we? And in Pilate's actions, and the crowd's actions. This is true of our God. And this chapter will we'll bear this out in full. It will be especially on display in Technicolor, kind of in the next portion of our text. But even here, we're beginning to see glimpses of Jehu's self-interest, his demands for loyalty from both the leaders of Samaria and Jehonadab. And when we look at this text, we are right to ask, is Jehu, is he really trusting in Yahweh to secure his throne? Or is he trusting in the loyalty and the strength of men? But stop and ask yourself this question. In my life, has there ever been a mixture of trust in God and trust in man? Have have I ever leaned perhaps more heavily on man for my safety and my security? We are not all that different from Jehu sometimes. And that can either paralyze us with fear or push us to place our faith in the God who keeps His word. We've seen the end of Ahab's house. And now we turn and consider the end of Baal's house. That's the second point, the end of Baal's house. Pick up reading there in verse 18. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal. And the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for him. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, And he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. What are we to make of this scene? There is the judgment upon Baal and those who worship him. But this judgment, it it occurs through deceptive means. One minute we cringe and the next we rejoice. Follow the chain of events closely. Jehu has arrived in the capital city of Samaria. This is the home of his new throne as uh, as the king of the northern kingdom. And after scooping up Jehonadab along the way, he assembles the people and proclaims to them that business will not go on as usual. Right? You you thought that Ahab was a great worshiper of Baal. Well, I'm going to show you something that you haven't seen before. There's going to be an intensification of Baal worship. And as readers, our first question is, what I mean, didn't you just tell Jehonadab, come with me, I I want you to see the zeal I have for the Lord. And now you're telling us you're going to increase Baal worship. I thought we were going to get something different than Ahab. Something's not quite right here. And we as readers, we sense that. And indeed, the author, he lets us in on a little secret. But those in Jehu's hearing, they don't have this information. And as the scene progresses, we we begin to see what Jehu is up to. He's deceiving the worshipers of Baal. He's leading them like sheep to the slaughter. He appears to be calling for a party, a great feast, worship festival. But in reality, it's an ambush. Jehu's careful with each step. He makes sure that all the worshipers of Baal are there. He threatens to put them to death if they don't turn up. But then he quietly ensures that all the worshipers of Yahweh are absent. And this is where Jehu made Jehanadab prove his loyalty. That was his task, to go out there and make sure there weren't any worshippers of Yahweh there. He had to prove that he was loyal to Yahweh and so deliver to safety any of Yahweh's servants. Because Jehu, he has one of them caught in the crossfire of what's about to take place. Jehu asks for the worshippers of Baal to be adorned in their, their religious attire, their Sunday best and their priest vests. They will die as they have lived, devoted to Baal. This is what the worship of false gods, this is how false worship will end in judgment. Consider that. If you worship anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible, it will end in judgment. Consider the end and be wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jehu and his crew not only put to death every... Baal worshipper in that house but they destroyed the pillar dedicated to Baal and they burned the house down and to add insult to injury they made it a latrine. Now some might say that this was that this iteration was an imminently more useful facility but the bottom line of, of it all is that Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel you see that in verse 28 and in some respects this is a victory right we don't like the blood we don't like the urine we don't like the deceit but wasn't this a right and righteous thing for Jehu to do? Matthew Henry wrote of this, God is not the author of any man's sin, but even by that which men do from bad principles, God serves His own purposes and glorifies His own name. And He is righteous in that wherein men are unrighteous. So yes, God is righteous in His judgment, even where Jehu Acts unrighteously in carrying out God's judgment. Jehu has no warrant for deceit. He has no warrant for deceit. And yet, he has divine warrant for destroying, for wiping out false worship in Israel. This afternoon, you should go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 13. There, the people of Israel were repeatedly told that they were to destroy false worship in Israel. Every remnant of it. They were to destroy it all. They were to put to death those who sought to entice them away from the worship of Yahweh. Sought to entice them to the worship of false gods. In, In that chapter, in Deuteronomy 13, Moses mentions a prophet and a dreamer of dreams. He says, look, if this guy comes along he starts telling you these things to pull you away, you put him to death. And then, if there's a son of your mother's brother, if this son of Israel comes along, he entices you away, you put him to death. And then Moses goes on yet again. He says, by the way, if there's a whole city who's devoted to false worship. He says this in Deuteronomy 13, 15. There's a city that's devoted to false worship. You put the whole city to death. You gather all of their possessions in the town square, and you burn the city and all its spoil with fire. False worship was not to be tolerated in Israel. And what did Jehu do here? He gathered all of the culprits of Baal, all of their... Worshippers, he gathered all of their religious possessions and he burned the house down. Apart from his deceit, didn't he do what was right in the sight of the Lord? Didn't he purge Israel of Baal worship? Shouldn't we do the same with sin in our lives? Are we so determined to ruthlessly root out sin in our lives Think of this picture of the end of Baal worship. Think of this pile of hot ash and urine and ask yourself, is this what you want done to sin in your life? Do you want it uprooted and burned down? Ask the Lord to give you disdain, to give you his disdain for sin. What about for us as a congregation? This is what was taking place in the corporate life of the people of Israel. Jehu is eliminating Baal worship throughout the land. Do we, as a church, want to be marked by holiness? Now we're obviously not Old Testament Israel. The instructions in Deuteronomy, obviously carried out here in Second Kings, were for Old Testament, or for the Old Testament people of God, for their life in the Promised Land. And yet, these principles actually apply to us. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5, So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And that's what Jehu did. And did you know that the Apostle Paul uses those same words of the New Testament church in 1 Corinthians 5? Paul, he basically yells at the church in Corinth. A man in their church professed to be a worshiper of Jesus, and he was fornicating with his father's wife. In verse 2 of that chapter, he says, And you are arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul doesn't tell the church to stone the man or to burn his house to the ground. No, instead he instructs the church to practice church discipline, to to excommunicate him, because he's telling a lie about what it means to be a worshiper of Jesus. Just like you cannot be a worshiper of Baal and a worshiper of Yahweh at the same time, so you cannot be a worshiper of Jesus and a worshiper of sexual immorality at the same time. That's what that man was. He was a worshiper of sexual morality, And Paul says, you cannot allow him to remain a member of your church because he's going to lead other people astray. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Paul quotes Moses, so purge the evil from among you. And that's why Jehu couldn't leave Baal worship in Israel either. That's just what Moses was warning about with respect to false prophets and sons and Worthless men who lead cities astray in Israel. Paul says, brothers and sisters, you've, you've, you've got to do something about this. But why? Why did the church in Corinth need to cleanse out this evil? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul is concerned for the purity of Christ's church, and he is concerned that God's grace in Jesus Christ may not be tainted. Yes, the church is full of sinners, and we are going to sin, but we do not go on sinning so that grace may increase. Just as God's redeeming grace was revealed in the Passover, and that should have encouraged Israel to remain holy in their worship of Him, so God's grace in Jesus Christ. Our Passover lamb ought to encourage us to pursue holy worship of Jesus. Now, we don't put unrepentant sinners to death. We don't pursue what's prescribed in Deuteronomy 13 and prosecuted in 2 Kings chapter 10. We don't put unrepentant sinners to death or burn their houses down or make them latrines. That's not what Paul instructs. He says, put the unrepentant sinners out of the church membership and away from communion so that their sin may be put to death. Put them out so that they may put away their sin and so return to Jesus and be saved. Our worship, including our practice of church membership and discipline, is to be holy. It's to be directed by God and to God alone. It's to be focused on Jesus. But that can't be done when there are idols and false gods competing for worship. False worship must be purged from among us. And here's where the lesson of 2 Kings chapter 10 comes shockingly home to us. False worship is not simply in abandoning obvious sins like sexual immorality or or, or whatever uh, sin of the society we see that's out there that we are particularly enraged by. False worship is not something only found out there it's something that's found within our own hearts false worship is even found in half-hearted worship it's found in worship according to my way instead of God's ways in other words false worship doesn't just take place in Baal's house but in the houses of our own hearts Jehu's eradication of Baalism did not ensure true religion in Israel Or in his own heart just because you get rid of one form of false religion doesn't mean you've gotten rid of all forms of false religion in the close of this chapter we learn that sin's true defeat comes through true devotion to God and Jehu he wasn't truly devoted to God and if we're engaging with the scriptures honestly then we've got to ask ourselves are we truly devoted to God We've seen the end of Ahab's house. We've seen the end of Baal's house. And now we turn and consider the end of Jehu's reign. And this is our third point. The end of Jehu's reign. Follow along as I read chapter 10, beginning there in verse 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But, notice that contrast, right? Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not... Turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what was right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But, contrast, but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Nassites from Araware, which is in the valley of the Arnon, that is in Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, and all that he did, and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Now looking upon Jehu's eradication of Baalism, some scholars have called Jehu... Righteous Jehu. That is an overly optimistic perspective on Jehu. If anything, the verses we have just read reveal to us that Jehu is half-hearted at best. And a half-heart masquerading as a whole heart is nothing but a hypocritical heart. Now Jehu's half-hearted devotion to the Lord is seen in verse 29. You see that there? Where we're told he did not... Turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. To remember what is going on here, you have to remember what took place in 1 Kings chapter 12. There, Solomon's kingdom was divided in half. That's how we get the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Solomon's kingdom is divided in half with Jeroboam becoming the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam didn't want the people of his kingdom, people in the north, traveling down to the southern kingdom to worship Yahweh. That's where the temple was. So he set up these centers of worship in Bethel and Dan. As one believer observed, Jeroboam led the people of Israel, of the northern kingdom, into idolatry because of his insecurity. He was afraid of losing his people. To the southern kingdom and here is the insanity of insecurity and idolatry the Lord of heaven and earth Yahweh God he promised Jeroboam in 1st Kings chapter 11 verses 38 and 39 that if he walked in the ways of the Lord and did what was right in God's sight that the Lord would make Jeroboam a sure house there was a way to guarantee an ongoing dynasty to be faithful to the Lord But he was afraid. He was more afraid of losing people than he was of trusting the Lord, of fearing the Lord. His insecurity led to idolatry. And we see it still has, generations later, ongoing effects. And Jehu, well, he's a bit like old Jeroboam. He is the one who called for, even demanded loyalty from the rulers of Samaria and Jehonadab. He is unwilling to fully trust Yahweh. We know that he's unwilling to fully trust Yahweh because fully trusting Yahweh would have meant demolishing the golden calves in Bethel and Dan. Right? And these golden calves, we remember them from when Aaron set them up in the wilderness. And God judged the people of Israel for them. And yet, they're continuing on in this form of worship that they know is hated by God fully trusting Yahweh would have allowed with an open hand His people to travel to the southern kingdom to worship Yahweh at the temple in Jerusalem. And this would have been in accordance with what Yahweh declared in Deuteronomy 12. There in Deuteronomy 12 it was made plain as with all of life worship is ordered by God. It's guided by His laws and decrees. God's people worship God according to what is either expressly enjoined upon them in the scripture by explicit command or by a good and necessary consequence that may be deduced from the Scripture. We cannot just do what we want to do in worship. We've got to do what God says to do in worship. In Deuteronomy 12, it's painfully plain that worship is ordered by God and directed to the place that He determines. In in this era, in 2 Kings 10, in this era, that meant Jerusalem, where the temple was located. For now, worship is ordered by God It's directed to the place He determines, and it's defined by His means. God tells His people the what, the where, the when, and the who of holy worship. But here is Jehu persisting in Jeroboam's sin of worshiping Yahweh according to his own desires. Do you see how he exalted himself above God? He is, in effect, saying to Yahweh, Look, I know that you said we've got to worship in Jerusalem. I know that you said, We shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. I know that you said, You shall not bow down and serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous, God. But, like, look, this is really convenient for us. We don't, we don't have to go that far. Come on. We're still worshiping you, old buddy. We don't get to negotiate with God. We can only worship God in the manner that He determines through the means that He prescribes because of the blood that He has supplied in Jesus Christ. David Peterson put it like this, the worship of the true and living God is essentially an engagement with Him on the terms that He proposes and in the way that He alone makes possible. Is it any wonder that Jehu and His heirs, that they'll only reign On the throne for four generations. That's what we learn in verse 30. And it's true. Verse 30 is something of a a positive evaluation. Uh, uh, But you notice there, even though there's this positive evaluation of of Jehu in verse 30, what's it wrapped in? What's verse 29 say? What's verse 31 say? What do those bookends actually say? They're in a negative evaluation of Jehu. And what do you think the author wants you to take away from those three verses? Yeah, yeah, okay. Jehu did some right things. But he mostly made Israel to sin. He was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. Let those words sink in. He was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord. Yep, he lived his own law. He made up his own rules, his own laws for worship. He was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with what? With all his heart and when you think of what God wants from his kings this is it he wants his kings and his people to walk in the law of the Lord with all of their heart and this in many ways is the fountainhead of all biblical religion you get this one right and all is right and you get this wrong all is wrong if your heart is steadfastly tied to Yahweh you will not go astray Instead, you'll walk in His ways. Friend, where is your heart with the Lord? Are you living His way? Or your own way? The the answer to that question will tell you where your heart is. Do you live your Christianity when it's convenient? I'll tell my neighbor or my co-worker about Jesus just... Not right now. At a more convenient time. Bethel and Dan, they were convenient for Jehu and the northern kingdom. Our God is not concerned about convenience. He's concerned about total consecration. Total wholehearted devotion. Jehu swapped out Baal for convenience. Are you trying to fit Jesus into your life? Or does he rule over it? Are you living a nice life on the outside, while on the inside you are full of dead men's bones? Is your heart just like a whitewashed tomb, to use Jesus' words? Are you anything like Jehu? May God forgive us for our love of comfort and convenience. And may He give us more wholehearted consecration. Verses 32 to 36, do you see them there? They show us the Lord's judgment on Jehu. That's why I read them with a so. The author has told us of his judgment in verses 29 and 31. But verses 32 to 36, they show us the Lord's judgment on Jehu. You see, the Lord promised in Deuteronomy 28 verse 25 that when Israel's kings and her people go astray, he would cause Israel to be defeated before her enemies. And that's precisely what happens in verse 32. And 33. Haziel is a form of judgment on Jehu's half-hearted religion. Jehu is not the king we've been waiting for in the book of Kings. He's not the king who leads God's people out of sin. He makes them to sin. He is a king who executes God's judgment, yes, but he is also a king who is judged. You may do things for God and yet still be judged by him. He is not a king who is personally, perfectly, or perpetually devoted to God with his whole heart. So as we read the book of Kings, we see that we're still waiting for the king who would be careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. And as we read Jehu's story, we have to see a picture of ourselves in him. We may not have shed blood like him, but sadly, too often we've been half-hearted like him. And because we've been half-hearted like him, we deserve to be judged like him. But the good news of 2 Kings chapter 10 and the Bible is that sin's true defeat comes through true devotion to God. While Jehu wasn't the king we've been waiting for, the king we have been waiting for has come. Sin has truly been defeated in Jesus because he was wholly devoted to the Lord. Jesus, and Jesus alone was the only one who ever personally and perfectly and perpetually kept the law of God. He was careful to walk in the law of God, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He was the only one who never turned aside from the right or to the left. He was the only one who ever walked in all the way that the Lord God commanded. And though he was perfectly loving and perfectly sinless, he was punished in his death on the cross for the sins of unloving, half-hearted lawbreakers like you and me. Still, three days after his death, God the Father raised him from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that he was the sufficient and all-satisfying sacrifice for our sin. Through his saving work, he has secured an eternally long life in the promised land of heaven for all who are united to him in love and faith. Unlike Jehu's heirs, Jesus' heirs will reign for far longer than four generations. Jesus' heirs will reign with him for all eternity. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to turn from your sins and to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Turn from your life of love of self, from your insecurity, from your idolatry, from your half-hearted devotion and trust in the loving life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He lived for you, the life of love that you have not lived. Believe that He died for you, devoted to God the Father and believe that His resurrection proves that love is one and that His blood covers all of your sins. Brothers and sisters, sin's true defeat does come through true devotion to God. It comes through Jesus' true devotion on our behalf. And now Jesus calls us on to true devotion to God as well. He calls us out of our half-hearted Obedience to wholehearted obedience unto God. Jesus, by the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit, has equipped us for every good work. We can overcome sin and temptation, not fully and finally in this life, but truly and meaningfully. Sin really does no longer have dominion over God's people. We can no longer make excuses when He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. If you are united to Jesus Christ by faith. The unbreakable power which defeated sin and death through the resurrection is yours by the ministry and mediation of the Holy Spirit. Practically speaking, you must put sin to death. You must put sin to death like Jehu put Baalism to death. Be killing sin or it will be killing you, John Owen once said. Not only must you put sin to death, you must put sin's support network to death. Right? When Jehu put all of the house of Ahab to death, he was putting to death those who would have been supporters, uh, supporters, proponents of Baalism in Israel after he was gone. They would have resurrected Baalism because they they were for Ahab. They were for Jezebel. They were for Baalism. Anything that coddles and comforts our sin ought to be cut off. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter five, five, verses twenty-nine and thirty? He said, "If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell." What ends do we want to meet? Put sin to death. Put sin's support network to death. But ultimately, put before your eyes and heart the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what strengthens us. What Jesus has done strengthens us. It sustains us. It spurs us on to put sin to death. For there, in the cross and resurrection, we see that sin's true defeat has come through Jesus Christ. Remembering all that we have in Jesus helps us to look temptation and sin in the eye and say, I won't do that. I don't do that because I am united to the living Christ. I am not dead in my sins and trespasses anymore. I'm not bound by them. I'm not a slave to sin. Jesus Christ has set me free. This is how Jesus becomes the center of the portrait of our lives. And not just some dimly painted king in the background. What is your life's portrait about? Who is in the center? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? Let's pray together.